Welcome to The Blast Zone, the podcast where we dig up the bombs that shook Hollywood and try to find out why they went up in flames. This week, when you dance with the devil, the devil don't change. He changes you by curing your lung cancer. This is Constantine. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Blast Zone. Welcome to the Blast Zone. We are not a podcast about bad movies. We are a podcast about movies that did badly. That's right. I'm John Drake, in-house film critic of my Letterboxd account. And I'm Ian Dukes. I'm a person with thoughts and feelings, and some of them are about movies. Movies like Constantine, which we'll be talking about today. But before we get into that, Ian, how are you doing this week? You know, I often talk about struggling with stress and worry on here, and Mm -hmm. I decided to do something about it. This week, I had my first initial appointment with a therapist. Therapist. It went well. They asked me, had I done any other therapy before? I said, yes, I have a podcast. Uh, so uh, yeah, we just jumped right into it. Nice, nice. Well, I'm proud of you. That's a big step. Thank you. I support therapy in all its forms, including podcasting, but yeah. talking to someone with a doctor is probably a good idea. Yeah, taking it to the next level. At various times in our history, our listeners have been a little concerned about you and your mental health. But, uh, <laughs> I appreciate that. Is Ian okay is one of our most popular questions. <laughs> Maybe I will be one day. You're on the path to being okay now. Will Ian be okay? Possibly. That'll be a recurring segment on the show. We'll check in with Ian's mental state from time to time. Um, it finally got cold here in New England. Oh, okay. It happened. It was bound to happen. Yeah. We got a little bit of snow actually the other day. Nothing like what Buffalo's getting as we're recording this, but uh, yes. we got we got a dusting, which was upsetting because a week before that it was 74 degrees. This is just a reality we live in now, but I'm excited. Tomorrow I'm going to my old stomping grounds of Queens, New York Ooh. and uh, meeting up with some friends. Me and my wife, Jamie, are heading down there. We're going to go nice. check out some breweries, check out some bars, have some revelry. So I'm, I'm very excited for that. I mean, you need a grown-up day once in a while. Yes, that sounds really fun. I'll let you know how it goes next week. Once this podcast is in the bag, I'm going to go to bed, get a nice eight, nine hours of sleep. So I'm well rested for tomorrow and then Perfect. get to it. Yeah. Sounds awesome. Have fun down there. Oh, well, appreciate it. But uh, before we start talking about Constantine, I, everyone knows how this goes by now. Did you happen to watch anything else this week that you wanted to talk to the listeners about? I did. I'm continuing a little story that I started last week. We talked about Edgar Wright, the Cornetto trilogy, and you're like, yeah, we should go back and revisit the whole thing. And I was like, okay. So I watched the world. World's End. I can't believe that came out all the way back in 2013. And that seemed like it was yeah. not so long ago. Well, it might be because we're watching The World's End on a daily basis, <laughs> yeah. just in like the real World's End. Yeah. It feels like right now it's so timely. It's a good movie. Okay. So last time it was Hot Fuzz. I think we were both close to saying that might be our favorite uh, mm-hmm. Edgar Wright movie, maybe the funniest one. This one's not quite there, but the first part of it is super relatable because it doesn't reveal its hand in being a wacky sci-fi story until halfway through the movie. So the first section is a relatable story. It's about the lost glory days of youth. It's about a guy who never grew up and is stuck in his past. And then at 40 minutes, the turn to sci-fi is so hard. It was difficult for me, even being absolutely favorable and loving the first part of the movie, to not fall off that horse when it made that turn. But you got to go with it. The sci-fi half of the movie is still cool. Edgar Wright loves people being chased just interminably. We talked about that in Soho. Like the end section of Soho turns into just a million street chases. And it seems like the same thing keeps happening. 
everything. And that World's End is exactly like that. There's just hordes of Edgar Wright's favorite movie, I think, is Run, Lola, Run. I think (laughs) you can make that determination. That explains a lot. Because, yeah, they're just being chased down streets forever. Probably could have used a tighter ending overall. Not his best, but it's still fun, unique, original story. And it's like, man, movies should take you to new places that you haven't gone and give you original stories. And so I still love it for being that. I do remember that feeling you're describing of being a little blindsided when the movie takes a turn halfway through into this weird sci-fi thing. Because I I was really vibing with the bar crawl guys in their 40s trying to reclaim some vestige of lost youth. That whole thing was very cool to me. And then, yeah, it is jarring when it takes a turn. But I'm willing to give it another shot. I think I soured on the movie because of that, because I was connecting with a movie that ceases to exist halfway through. Maybe I should go into it with an open mind and give it another shot. It doesn't abandon those themes. It just resolves them in a sci-fi way instead of in the very conventional way that you think it's going to. So it's just a lot of action insert. These guys who took a long time to set themselves up as these really relatable versions of guys going into middle age, all of a sudden they're all kung fu fighters. And you're like, wait a minute, was I supposed to know that about them? (laughs) Or am I just supposed to accept that? And you just have to, because you just go, look, it's Edgar Wright's world. We're just enjoying it for 90 minutes. I think maybe part of the reason I was less generous towards that movie was, I think that The Watch came out around that time, which is almost a similar idea of like middle-aged guys battling aliens. Okay. And uh, that movie fucking sucks. So (laughs) I might have just been burnt out on the concept. We're going to have to talk about The Watch at some point, unfortunately. But I went in a different route. You went back 10 years to revisit something topical to the podcast because we've been talking about it recently. I went in a totally different route. I watched the new Sylvester Stallone, Taylor Sheridan collaboration, which I believe is airing on Peacock called Tulsa King, which is about a New York mobster who spends 25 years in jail. He comes out. He's elderly as Sylvester Stallone is. The show, to its credit, bills the character Sylvester Stallone is playing as his real age, which is 74 years old. Oh, nice. So that throws like a whole nother angle into it. It's like an old man in the gun thing, but Sylvester Stallone is certainly not frail like Clint Eastwood was in his recent Uh Cry Macho or Robert Redford was in The Old Man in the Gun. He's still playing Sylvester Stallone. He's super muscled. He's intimidating. He solves his problems with violence by and large, but he basically gets sent upon his release. The mob is deteriorated as it is in real life. It's not nearly as prevalent as it was 25 years ago. The money's slower. He gets sent to Oklahoma to try to set up an outpost down there. Basically, they're trying to get rid of him is the sense. And being this resourceful gangster that he is, he finds a way to plant his flag down there and start making some money. And that's episode one. So it's airing weekly. You can't binge watch it. Oh, okay, cool. Um, So I'm only one in, but I'm certainly intrigued enough to stick with it. I've been very hit or miss with the Taylor Sheridan shows as much as I tend to enjoy the movies he's worked on. Mm -hmm. His shows are not for me by and large. Yellowstone is not a show I care about or the spinoffs. I didn't hate Mayor of Kingstown. There was a Jeremy Renner show he had a few months ago, but uh, so far this one seems to be doing the closest to what I enjoy about his movies in a show. I'll I'll definitely at least stick with the first season. And if I don't like it, then I can abandon it, but I'm going to see it through. That certainly is a good assemblage of talent there to see what they can come up with. Yeah. If you have any goodwill towards Sylvester Stallone at all, you'll be won over because he's in every scene, but it's very much his show. Being him age into this grizzled old guy who's still super muscled is interesting. I don't know what kind of steroids he's on. I mean, like he made a good impression on me in Creed being old sliced alone. So I'm ready for maybe another dose of that. Yeah. He's a little rougher around the edges than he is as old Rocky. Because old Rocky is just a big sweetheart. Yeah. And he certainly got a mean streak in this, but you can tell there's a little teddy bear underneath there somewhere. That sounds fun. Worthwhile for sure. But now let's talk about Constantine. This is one of our most requested episodes. Not really a bomb, so to speak. More of a disappointment. It didn't make any money, but it didn't lose like $100 million either. It just was a dud. Came and went without much fanfare. And then Gradually over the years, it built up this really strong fan base of people who adore it and are clamoring for a sequel, which, spoiler alert, we're getting now apparently. But what's your relationship to 
this movie? When do you think you saw it for the first time? What was your impression of it then? I can't remember when it was, but I did see it on streaming several years back. I remember liking it, but not in a super specific way, just kind of like, this is the kind of movie that I would like, a detective thriller with a paranormal angle. And so I just had generally good memories about it. I came into it this week thinking quite favorably of it. And I think I rode that wave of goodwill through my rewatches. There are definitely bumps in this movie, and I could tell that they were there, but I managed to surf through two watches of it this week without the bumps really bumping me. They didn't really let them bother me. So we're going to have to get into why it didn't do better, given all Mm -hmm. the things it has going for it. And I'm going to struggle maybe to get that perspective of what did the viewers think of this and what did I think of this the first time and what are this movie's flaws? But I dug it. I was ready for the ride and I enjoyed it. Yeah, this has long been a movie that I've been a champion of. I saw it in theaters, like I mentioned at the end of last week's episode. I did manage to get there in theaters and then I followed up. I got it on DVD and then I followed up and I got it on Blu-ray again. I've probably seen it five times in my life before I started researching it for this podcast. And it definitely is not a perfect movie, like you said. There are some ugly parts to it if you pay enough attention, if you really try to examine it. It was not well-reviewed upon its release. Okay. You're wondering why it didn't catch on. I think it failed to please two important groups of people, which are fans of the comic book and the character John Constantine. I don't think it does a good job representing that character. So if that's why you were there or you were thinking about going to see it. So he's a British paranormal investigator modeled after Sting, solving all these supernatural crimes around London. And now you find out it's Keanu Reeves in LA who's going to be doing it. So that could put a damper on your hype for the movie, I would imagine. And then if you're looking at it from a high-minded film critic point of view, there's definitely like story problems with it, but I think it's able to overcome them and still be a really fun time. We'll get into it, but I actually think it does a lot of things pretty admirably with the story. I think that its story problems are more in communicating its story or getting a little bit lost or making it hard to get the story across, but I'm probably going to give it points for the things it tried to achieve story-wise, and I think that it mostly succeeded for me. If I had to boil its problems down to one summary, it would be that it feels like a two and a half hour movie that got cut down to two hours. Yeah. And the fact that it's cut to two hours to the minute, I feel like is an indication that's probably <laughs> what happened because very rarely do movies, like that feels like a studio note. Like you cannot make this movie any longer than two hours. Yeah. And so they were like, fuck, we got to get it down <laughs> to exactly two hours. There are some subplots and some characters that are prominent in the beginning and the end, but get lost in the middle. And we'll talk more about that as we go through the story. And that feels yeah. like a victim of the edit. Definitely. And there's some clues about things that were definitely pulled, shot and edited out of it. Oh yeah. A couple of big ones. Yeah. yeah. There's a couple of big ones. So that'll be fun to talk about. But do you want me to get into the making of the movie and its winding road to uh, fruition? Yeah. Tell us how this thing happened. All right. The character of John Constantine was created by legendary comic book writer and curmudgeon Alan Moore in 1985, making his first appearance in DC Comics' The Saga of Swamp Thing number 37. In 1988, Jamie Delano was tasked with creating Constantine's first solo comic series titled Hellblazer. Originally published by DC, Hellblazer would move to their more adults-oriented imprint Vertigo in 1993 and would go on to be the longest-running and one of the most successful books in their portfolio. Even young adult readers loved him regularly. He was a Constantine favorite. The plan to bring Constantine to the big screen started all the way back in 1997 when producer Lauren Schuler Donner began developing a film. Paul Hunter, director of movies like Bulletproof Monk and and Nothing else. Was originally attached to direct. Hunter would be replaced by Tarsim Singh, director of the Jennifer Lopez thriller The Cell in 2001, with Nicolas Cage attached to star. Singh dropped out, stating he couldn't make the movie he wanted to with Cage as the star, which led to opposing lawsuits between himself and Warner Brothers. Keanu Reeves became attached to the project in 2002, with first-time director Francis Lawrence being hired to direct. They decided the movie would be called Constantine as opposed to Hellblazer, 
due to fears of confusion with the Hellraiser series of movies and the Hellboy movie that was already in pre-production. Dude, that's hella confusing. With a hefty $100 million budget, the choice was made to keep Constantine a PG-13 movie, a move that was opposed by both Reeves and Lawrence. The character of John Constantine was changed to American, and the setting of the story changed from England to Los Angeles, as the rest of the cast was rounded out by Rachel Weiss, Jaiman Hansu, Tilda Swinton, Peter Stormare, and a very young and very annoying Shia LaBeouf. Filmed around LA from October 2003 to February 2004, the film had a lengthy post-production process due to the heavy use of CGI needed for many of the film's action sequences and was given a release date of February 18th, 2005. That's right, they released it in Dumpuary. Dumpuary? The only month it's harder to score in is Cockblocktober. Reviews were mixed to negative as the movie has a 46% on Rotten Tomatoes, but many of the most prominent film critics absolutely hated the movie as it even appeared on Roger Ebert's most hated list. Even without strong competition at the box office, the movie failed to catch on, only earning $76 million in North America and $230 million worldwide, not enough to offset the hefty budget and marketing costs associated with the film. The film did immediately gain a cult following once it was released on DVD, though, and sequel rumors swirled about it for years, until September 2022, it was reported that it is actually happening. Reeves and Lawrence will return, they are pushing for an R rating, and we'll get a screenplay from... Akiva Goldsman. It can't all be good news. My old nemesis. Your nemesis, Akiva Goldsman. <laughs> he's not all bad. He was in a producer on this one. Yeah, he's very hit or miss. He's done some good stuff, but certainly the movies we've covered that he's written were not helped by his scripts. He's had some misses. I think he's the last producer listed on the list of producers of Constantine. What does that mean? He had the least to do with it or the most? I, I think the least. I think that puts him lowest, so he was probably just minimally involved. We'll see what he does if he's got the reins of the screenplay. Mm. You know, you talk about moving this character and the setting. The character is a big thing. We're going to spend the time talking about how Keanu works as his character. The setting, I love it. That's a plus for me. That's instantly more marketable. You show my city. Yeah. I loved all the exteriors. They're shooting demon attacks right on Broadway in the historic core of downtown LA. For me, that stuff is really fun. I don't know how that plays around the country and around the world, but I like it. The movie's shot, I would say it's not a handsomely shot film. It's trying to look dingy. It's trying to look washed out and it succeeds at that. So it's not like a glamorous portrayal of Los Angeles, but I feel like that wouldn't make sense with the story anyway. So I think the setting definitely works. I didn't have a problem with that. And the interiors are like Midnight's is just an awesome set and interior yeah. and, and setting for a cool scene. So yeah, I have no loyalty to the comic book character of John Constantine. I never read those comics. I could care less. That was never an issue for me, but just in researching it, I understand why some people are a little turned off by that. But can you imagine if that was Nicolas Cage, how much worse it would be? I wonder at that time. Yeah. Who was he in 2005? I'm not sure. I remember. I think he was just trying really hard to be in a comic book movie for a period of like 15 okay. years until he finally got the Ghost Rider movie. So I think anytime there was a roll up for a comic book character, he was trying to get into it because he's a famous comic book fan. Okay. He was still making pretty good stuff in 2005. He made Lord of War, which is like a top five Nicolas Cage movie for okay. me. He made the first National Treasure movie was 2004. So he wasn't like in his kind of free fall where he's just taking roles to pay his back taxes yet. He was still yeah. kind of a name, still had some cachet, but he's Nick Cage. You know what you're going to get with that performance. And Reeves does a nice subdued thing, which you can argue is maybe all he's capable of, but it works for the character because he's downtrodden. He's a little, a little beaten up by life. He's gotten some bad news recently. And there's a kind of a morose to him that I don't think Cage would have been able to pull off. It would have been more manic. You couldn't get away without some of that Cage manicness. But overall, this movie is quite classical in its bones. I guess that's true of a lot of comic book adaptations, which pull from classic tropes out of pop culture. And I don't know if the comics follow that because the story of this movie has such an L.A. detective noir 
private eye story arc and plot points, yeah. like through and throughout. We're going to come back to that as we go through the story. So many of them that it's ultra classical. So you could almost put any famous actor in this role and he could do a version of it that would make sense, at least with what's on the page of the script. It's funny. If you take the biblical, the religious supernatural elements out of this, make Satan into a mob boss, make Gabriel into a cop who's maybe gone dirty. The movie would definitely work as just like a purebred noir. <laughs> it's the same thing. It's exactly the same thing. It's wild when you start to see that and how hard it authentically tries to be a mystery. It spends a lot of time in solving the mystery instead of just being a supernatural thriller where demons escalate. I mean, the demons do escalate, but it's not just a growing danger thriller. It's really a crime solving, like a mystery solving movie. At times, I also got a vibe, like a Dark City vibe from it. I don't know if you felt the same, but mm, okay. uh, just the gothic vibe, the yeah. slowly unraveling mystery, the main character who's testing the upper limits of his power. They would make a nice double feature. Totally. Did you want to start going through the story? We can start picking apart some of these beats you know, yeah, one by one. I, I think we're ready to jump in. Here we go. John Constantine. Oh, let me try that again. John Constantine. <laughs> Constantine. <played> by- <laughs> Constantine. <Sorry. laughs> John Constantine, played by Keanu Reeves, is a spiritual detective using the special powers he was born with, plus some personal experience from a stint he did in hell. John tracks down and banishes demons who violate the truce between God and the devil by meddling in the world of people. He's also a chain smoker with terminal lung cancer. Constantine warns his friend, the angel Gabriel, played by Tilda Swinton, that he's seeing an alarming trend of demons trying to come through to the mortal plane. While doing so, he crosses paths with an LAPD detective named Angela, played by Rachel Weiss, whose twin sister Isabel just committed suicide at a psychiatric hospital under dubious circumstances. When he starts to think the cases are connected, John agrees to help Angela figure out if Isabel's soul really went to hell and why. John did a stint in hell. I didn't know he was from Cleveland. Oh, got <laughs> him. Got him bad. I'm kidding. I like Cleveland. I had a lovely <laughs> time there uh, last year. I went for a long weekend. It's just an easy target. So. Did it seem like an eternity, even though it was only two nights? Would that it were, but no, it did not. Yeah, so let's start at the beginning with this cold open with the Spear of Destiny being found, which, interesting tidbit, we talked off air about how similar this plot is to Hellboy, which also involves finding the Spear of Destiny and it granting its wielder unknown powers. And the funny thing is, it's not just the same item that they find, it's the same prop. Really? It's the same, same spear. Is it really? They use the same spear from the Hellboy movie. It really is. Did they buy it at an auction or is that like a handshake deal? you make was hellboy a warner brothers movie too i wonder if they just had it oh. in storage hold on like, i'm looking it up nope it was sony pictures wow uh, yeah it was the same prop they used in both movies pretty cool it's neat it's an interesting part of this movie it establishes the cool visual tone and the way the supernatural shit goes down which is great right this guy who's the scavenger stumbles upon this artifact and he's instantly possessed by powerful demonic forces and he strolls out into the street and the car plows into him in the car is just absolutely devastated by hitting him. Very cool effect there with the car bending around him. Super cool. And you're like, I don't know what the fuck that is, but there's hints at Nazis, right? Like the spirits wrapped in a Nazi flag. Another plot point from Hellboy. Yeah, I guess Hitler was very obsessed with occult artifacts. I think that's a mm-hmm. real thing we know from history. He yeah. had either sought it or found it. I don't know what really happened, but he definitely was interested in it. So I guess the story is just running with the idea that he did get it yeah. at some point and then lose it eventually. Lost it on a trip to Mexico. That's the way a lot of things get lost. <laughs> I don't know what Hitler 
brother was looking for in Mexico. You know, what was he doing down there? It was in the below the floor of a bombed out church, which itself was in the center of a pit mine. I don't know what this was supposed to be like. This is a pretty desolate place. I didn't put a lot of thought into like where they were. I thought they were just kind of <laughs> those guys you see at the beach were like metal detectors. I thought they were just equivalent to that. It's not as friendly. It's kind of a nasty place. And the cars drive fast. So if you step out onto that dirt road, you're liable to get smashed. What was that car doing? Where was it going? Somewhere real fast, man. <laughs> yeah. And they didn't see the guy walking out in front of them. But yeah, it's cool. And that continues. This guy just during the movie makes his way slowly from Mexico to LA. Doesn't interact with anybody except to kill them. He hops a fence and then he's in a herd of cattle and the cattle all start dying as he walks amongst them. That's Another also, cool scene. yeah, it's really dark and creepy yeah. and cool. But like this guy never actually speaks a word in the movie. So he's not really a character. He's a force of nature and he doesn't actually interact with anybody. So I think you and I both came to this conclusion, like get to the end of the movie and you're like, okay, the spirit destiny was part of the plot, but it wasn't an interactive part. It was just a thing. It was just like a storm that was coming and you knew, oh, when the storm gets here, it's going to be a lot of rain. And it just slowly arrived in LA. That's one of the things I was thinking about when I said that the movie feels like it was cut down because we go long stretches without checking in on this guy or seeing what right. the spear's up to, where it is in the world, how it's making its way to where the characters are and how it's going to interact with them. And then when it pops up, you're like, oh yeah, I forgot that was in this movie. It feels like something from another movie at times. And in the end, they just have it. It's like, of course they have it because the guy brought it, but no right. one like fights to stop it. It fails to, it's just like, it's there because it was going to get there by the end. It's a cool idea that maybe wasn't fully fleshed out, but we do get some fun visuals out of it, like we said. So yeah, worthwhile. It, it adds some style. It adds some pizzazz. And then I think it, it sets up the next scene, which is the proximity to the spear has caused a, a young girl to be possessed. Yes. Which is a fun scene. We get to meet Father Hennessy, who is played by none other than Pruitt Taylor Vince. And do you know another thing I've seen him in that was pretty good? No idea. Justified. It's our Justified Crossover of the Week. Justified Crossover of the Week. Damn it. Gotcha. We didn't have one. Oh no, we did have one last week? No, Airheads didn't have one, unfortunately. Okay. So yeah, we've been off for a week, but... He played uh, Fogel on Justified. He had a one-episode arc, but it was a memorable one. Played a real shithead. So it's nice to see him playing a likable character in this. He is likable in this, but I only figured that out after a couple watches. Because he does play a lot of creep. <laughs> he plays a lot of creepy characters in movies. And he often plays yeah. that guy who's kind of sad, but also dangerous. And that kind of seems what he is in this movie, too. And he has so few lines that he actually exchanges with... You know, he turns out to be one of Constantine's, like, network of dudes who help him get stuff done in his private detective business. But yeah. yeah. But he feels a little antagonistic when we meet him and I couldn't tell if he was on John's side. Clearly is by the end, but he's a sad character and Constantine makes him suffer, forces him to suffer to help him do the investigation and gets him killed. But we'll get to right. that. Right. He has this medallion that protects him and John's like, I need that. Yeah. You'll be fine. And spoiler yeah. alert, he's not fine. Uh, it's weird, but those well are, for him. yeah, those are some of the more subtle details of the plot points that I didn't get until the very last watch I did. That, oh, why did he take that amulet off him there? Oh, because he needed him to hear his voices. There's like a lot of little things going on that make more sense, which is a good explanation of why this movie works better as a cult classic than as a box office blockbuster, because it takes rewatches to get everything out of it. It might seem like a silly surface level spooky ghost story at first, but there is some subtlety to it. There's some layers to it that aren't immediately apparent. Then we get this cool exorcism scene. He pulls this demon out of this mirror and then throws the mirror out the window. Pretty cool. I had no, no issues with the scene. I like demons. I like exorcism scenes. It was well 
well done, I thought. Pretty harrowing seeing this little girl suffer. Certainly Shades of the Exorcist, we see where some of those tropes come from. Even the fact that, I think, doesn't the Exorcist have a scene in the desert where a scary artifact is discovered and sets off, sets the devil free? Might be the first scene. I haven't seen the Exorcist in a while, but it might also Me be either. the first scene of the Exorcist. Yeah. There's kind of an Exorcist parallel in the first. Oh, what's that fucking demon's name? I can't remember his name. Something with a K. I remember a funky little statue and it was scary. Kazuzu? Am I, is that it? Kazuzu? I have no idea. Hold I don't on. know. Let me Google it. If I got that right, I'm going to pat myself on the back so hard. That wasn't a Scooby-Doo sidekick? No, it wasn't a Scooby-Doo sidekick. <laughs> no, I just want to know his name. Come on. Pazuzu. Oh, I was so close. Oh, that was good, man. <laughs> I give you points for that. I get at least partial credit, I think. I had no yeah. idea. Pazuzu. <laughs> yeah. He plays like a more prominent role, I think, in the sequels. I vividly remember The Exorcist 3 scaring the absolute shit out of me. That movie's fucking oh, terrifying. It might be scarier thought. than The Exorcist, but not as good, if that makes sense. Interesting. Check it out if you're... I think it bombed, actually. Maybe we can do it. Maybe so, next Blastober. We might have to. And then in this sequence, we also get introduced to Chaz, which is John's little sidekick played, unfortunately, by Shia LaBeouf. Not that the performance is bad necessarily, but everything with Shia LaBeouf and it feels weird now. It all feels weird, but this is what he was good at. I mean, he was great as an annoying sidekick. He did it in iRobot just a year before with Will Smith. That he played oh, the same yes. character, more or less. The snappy patter, the rhythm to his speech patterns, which he seems to bring to most of his roles. It works as this weird little newsboy cap wearing cab driving apprentice. Yeah. Why does he say John so much? Did you notice this? I didn't Every really. Time- I saw he made a note. You could talk to him and be like, John, where are we going, John? John, why do you want me to move the car, John? He says his name like twice in every sentence and it freaks me the fuck out. I was so confused. But it definitely feels like a Shia affectation. It does. That kind of yeah, nervous energy. Exactly. That feels like a little bit ad-libbed, adding some Johns to the script. But he's certainly charming. This was the beginning of his adult stardom. I know he'd acted in some stuff as a kid, like Holes right. and I think even Stevens. But this was him coming into his own as an adult actor. And then he went on a pretty impressive run from 2005 to like 2015 of just blockbusters and critically acclaimed roles. And then it all went to shit because he's a fucking maniac. A troubled individual from what we can tell. It's unfortunate. This character is one of those big examples of what you brought up. Is like, he's here in the beginning. You're like, oh, it's going to be Constantine and his sidekick. And his sidekick is going to be next to him the whole time, bucking to be allowed into the action. And he is for a minute and then he's gone. And we meet him again at the end. And then he has a whole wrap up to his plot, which could have been very emotional if it was a movie about Constantine and his sidekick, but it's not. So it's it's just weird. It's like, oh shit, there's that kid again. And oh fuck, they killed him off. <laughs> Spoiler alert. He's kind of marked for death once he reappears though, because you're like, he hasn't been in the movie enough to <laughs> really like matter unless he's going to be a catalyst for pissing John off or something. But yeah, it does feel like there's some something missing. But in the little parts he does have to play, he kind of almost makes that plot line work of the apprentice who shows himself to be ready for the big challenge at the end and then pays the price and makes Constantine sad. Now, like we're meeting Constantine's crew here. We met Father Hennessy. We met Chaz. We're about to meet Beeman in this section too, who's like his M. Which, which guy is Bond's weapons and Q. gear guy? Oh, that's Q. Sorry, I got my letters mixed it's up. Q, right? Yeah. Beeman is Q. He's the guy he goes to and he gives him, I collected these weird artifacts and here's your fun weapons that are going to set up the genre shit we're going to get to play with in the next few fight scenes. If you wanted another comic book example, he's Constantine's microchip if Constantine is the Punisher. Oh, okay. I didn't know that comic yeah. well enough, but I like that. Played by uh, our boy Evan Moss Backrack in the Punisher show with John Bernthal. I got to check out a little bit of that because I love both those guys. So. Yeah. So we meet, like these guys are all marked for fucking death immediately, but I thought it's a missed opportunity that Beeman is killed by flies. Like 
Should have had him killed by V's right there in his I name. I know. That is unfortunate. That's a miss. But this is another character where maybe if they had given him more screen time, you could have made heads or tails of him. He's just always in a weird emotional state. I guess maybe because he's about to be killed in one of the two scenes he's in. Can't make right. much sense of him. But like this story, like when you plot out what happens in the story, and I didn't get it till, because Father Hennessy was, like I said, kind of a mystery about how much of a real buddy he was to Constantine. But once you know he is, you see what happens. Constantine takes on this case. Angela comes and is like, hey, I need you to help me figure out what happened to my sister. He's first the reluctant detective, like, oh, you're a cop. Figure it out. You got a theory. Kind of blowing her off. And then he like goes, wait, this may be something I need to look into because it relates to the thing I'm into. So he takes on the case reluctantly and all three of his dudes get killed. Two of them. Pretty fast. Pretty soon. Yeah. Hey guys, can you help me investigate this case? They're like, sure, we're your guys. And then they're just like, they are off right away. It's also unclear how they get paid. Are they just buddies and they're doing it as a favor? Because that's even worse somehow. Are they independent contractors? That's a good question. How does John get paid? Yeah. He doesn't take any money after the exorcism as far as i can tell no the business side of this is real cryptic then they're trading in these gold artifacts and things it must be quite valuable i don't know where the cash flow comes in this operation and i know they want you to think his apartment over the bowling alley is like a real shithole but it's not it's pretty sweet yeah like, except for the bug problem he's got spiders crawling spiders. all over his table aside from that it's a pretty sweet apartment it's unique at least yeah. don't tell me that wouldn't rent for sixty five hundred dollars a month i think downtown la was revitalizing at that time he probably got in cheap, but nowadays it's you couldn't afford to live there. Maybe Beeman owns the bowling alley because that's where his office is too and lets him work there, like lets him live there for free. But then it begs the question, like, why are they so loyal to this guy? For all the questions they try to answer, there's a lot of unanswered ones. Well, I don't think they, they wanted to dive too deep into his personal finances. It's probably not what the focus of the movie is. <laughs> maybe, in the, maybe on the show they made for NBC or whatever, they dive into that, how yeah. it gets paid. I'm curious. Um, so yeah, the, su- the suicide is well done, I thought. It's effective. It's creepy. You could tell there's more at play here than meets the eye, which is a good place to be, but you can't really immediately tell what's going on. And the movie does a good job of slowly unraveling that mystery for you. It's full of all the symbolism, right? She's in like a Catholic psychiatric hospital with a big cross on it. And it has this dramatic overlook of a skylight over a pool, which unfortunately that's how she meets her end. But th- what's yeah, I would close is- that skyline after the second time somebody <laughs> falls through it, right? You got to make <laughs> yeah. some adjustments. Some renovations are in order. As nice as it is to have natural light in your pool room for the aqua therapy, you might have to take safety as a consideration. Yeah, there's this confusing thing here in that I feel like they worked backwards. There's this plot point where Constantine, once he agrees to help Angela, he's like, we're going to figure out if your sister really committed suicide. I have a way to find out. I'm going to go to hell and look around and see if she's there. And he does that, which is fun and cool. And we get to see hell. Which looks like LA, but like after a nuclear bomb went off. Apparently that's what they based it on. Like, so it's yeah, blasting with waves of concussion and fire constantly. It's, it's awful, which I like that. I thought that was a cool interpretation. That totally worked for me. But they held this thing back. So one of the ways he proves to Angela subtly that he really was in hell and he really did see her sister is the moment he comes back, he goes, you guys were twins. He didn't fucking tell me. I just saw her in hell and she looks fucking exactly like you. He doesn't say <laughs> all those words, but that's like the PG-13. Unfortunately. <laughs> yes. But it's interesting that they held that back, but that could be one of the things that confused viewers. I think I was probably confused about that the first time. Who were those two people? Were they the same people? Until Constantine goes, you guys were twins. And then some things click. Yeah. To steal a phrase you used last week, it's hiding the ball a little bit and not sure to what effect. I don't think it really detracts from the movie because once it clicks, it clicks and you're, you're fine. Yeah. But it could have your mind going, maybe not paying attention to what's on the screen because you're trying to work it out for a little longer than it needs to. Could be a bit of a distraction or like you start to feel fatigued. But before we move on to the next section, I think we've covered just about everything. We have to say we get some prime fucking Tilda in this movie yes. as the angel Gabriel. This is probably the first time I remember seeing Tilda Swinton in something or certainly the first time I was like, who the fuck 
is that? Because yes. so good in this movie. I was going to say the exact same thing. I think this is when I met Tilda Swinton and I did not know what to make of her. And this movie is a perfect vehicle for her to just fuck with your head. I'm trying to think of the next role of hers that I was really taken by. And I think it was Michael Clayton, which was maybe two years later. But she's playing a very nervous character in that. Like she has such nervous energy throughout that movie. And she's very confident as Gabriel throughout most of this movie. So those are a fun dichotomy to see the range she has as an actor because she's doing very different things with them, but they're both super captivating and steal every scene they're in. There's a meme about Tilda being an actual otherworldly being. And I feel like this movie did a lot yes. to establish that conception of her in the public's mind. Actually, when we announced this movie on the Twitter, somebody replied and said, uh, this is actually the only movie she's ever been in where they didn't have to digitally remove her angel wings from every <laughs> yes. shot. And I thought that was pretty funny. Yeah, so. that was great. But it shows you that's the thing. A lot of people, I think, first met her in this and it's she's playing Gabriel, who is possibly a male angel, but the character is played down the middle, quite androgynous. And it adds an extra sizzle. It really elevates the movie. I liked it a lot. And she has great chemistry with Reeves in their scene in this section when they meet at the library slash church. Whereas like Reeves and Vice don't have great chemistry, I feel like. You also mentioned that. I want to give you credit because you had a note about that. But I think the movie knows that and plays a little bit. But I don't know if the movie's aware of how much chemistry there is between Swinton and Reeves, but they really do have a dynamic on screen that's fun to watch. Yeah. And it makes sense to us as fans who think of them as interesting people off screen that that's some of the reason that because of who they are as interesting individuals, they they clicked. You want me to walk through the middle part of the movie where a lot of, a lot of the story happens? Let's get into it. What happened next? All right. Constantine's associates Beeman and Father Hennessy help decipher clues to Isabel's death before each of them in turn is killed by the demon Balthazar, played by Gavin Rosdale. But the story is now clear. Isabel had psychic powers and the devil's son Mammon has chosen her as the vessel for his birth into the earthly realm. So she killed herself in order to stop him. Then Angela tells Constantine she once had the same psychic abilities as her sister, but she repressed them. So Constantine conducts a near-death ritual to reawaken her powers. Then they track down and interrogate Balthazar, who admits that Mammon's new plan is to use Use Angela as his vessel. But before they can act, Angela is abducted by an unseen force and Constantine is left alone. This is where all the gumshoe stuff happens. And we already started to talk about it, how Constantine sets his associates out on the trail. And another thing he does is drop in on his friend, Papa Midnight. Papa Midnight. I fucking love this character. I love Jaiman Hansu, the ageless one. He's 60 years old, I think, but he <laughs> still looks exactly the same. He's just, yeah. he's such a great presence in every movie. I never That's complain true. about him. He's 58, by the way. I was close. And like the character Pop Midnight, the whole setting is just super cool and very noir. You have a power broker who's impartial, maybe go to him to get some scoop, but he can't really take your side. Yes. And he's also one of the only characters directly lifted from the comic book for this movie. Oh, okay. So a bit of fan service there. It's funny because you could imagine trying to adapt a comic book, especially one that's had some significant number of issues. And yeah, there's a lot of side characters and there's a lot of things that would just be texture for certain storylines, but they worked a lot into this movie. Like we said, you could probably erase this whole subplot because all he does is set up more of the world, talk about the truce and him being a powerful guy who straddles the line and doesn't want to offend either side. More expositional. He has one element that he holds on to, which is this electric chair that Constantine wants to use. From Sing Sing. Yeah. That's like his sleuthing tool. It's like, let me into your archives or something. I don't know what the analogy would be in a conventional detective movie. If it was a Stephen King movie, it'd be your memory warehouse. Exactly. It's like, yeah, let me browse your memory warehouse. But it's like a minor 
thing. And like in the end, he lets him use it. But the thing he finds out is go to the hospital where everything began and you can have your show down there. I was like, I, he probably could have figured that out on his own. It's not the biggest revelation. Oh, pun because you know, religion <laughs> and stuff. But I think I give the movie a lot of credit for doing a lot of casual world building, not beating mm-hmm. you over the head with it. It drops in these very subtle world building moments. And I think Midnight's and Papa Midnight specifically are just really important to the vibe of the world and setting the tone for what's going on just under the surface of LA. So I think it's effective in that sense. And I wouldn't want to lose it because by the time you're done with this movie, you've been shown a lot more than you've been told about how this all works. And that's great. And I love that. And I want more of that. Yeah, that's a great observation. And one of the things that happens is to get into this club, the bouncer holds up these funny tarot-like cards and you have to be a psychic enough to know what's on the side of the card that's facing away from you to get in. So everybody in this club is at least psychic enough to be able to read cards, the Ghostbusters opening scene style. Not Chaz though. You can't get in. No. That's a good line though. When John's like, yeah, you can get in if you can get in. And you're like, oh, what does that mean? And then you find out that you have to know the cards and he doesn't know the card. Yeah, but like it doesn't explain it. Like why do demons have psychic powers? Some of these people in there look like they're vampires or something. They're like turning wine into blood. I don't even know what we're seeing. They're like jumping on each other. But of course, everyone can do a little psychic card trick. It's a nice little detail that the movie drops on us. And there's a lot of that sprinkled throughout that I appreciate. So we already kind of talked about Beeman, but this is the section where he dies. And uh, it's a pretty interesting death. He's just covered in flies. One crawls out his eye in a pretty grisly scene. I thought that was cool. I feel like we've seen that. That's almost like a special effects trope. Candyman did a lot of that. Okay. But yeah, fly crawling out from under a person's eyelid. It usually is there to tell us that they are already dead. You're like, oh, you see a person. Oh, is that a live person or some kind of undead creature? And you go, he's not really itching at the the fly that's crawling across his eyeball. Maybe he's not alive. But in this case, Beeman's still alive when this is happening to him. He just seems to react pretty chill to the idea that flies are coming out of his orifices. Not as upset about it as I would be, I'd guess. And then, of course, this is the work of Balthazar, who also kills Father Hennessy in a pretty... His death seems a little more effective because it's got this kind of sense of panic to it that it maybe is missing from the Beeman scene where he's trying to... I guess he's a recovering alcoholic is the vibe we get, or maybe just an alcohol. So I think I parsed it out on my final watch. So this is one of those things like we talked about. Father Hennessy can hear voices. That's how his psychic power manifests. And Constantine tells him, take off your amulet. I know it's a pain, but I need you to hear the voices because I need you to help me figure out what happened with this Isabel chick. And he's like, okay. And so he starts hearing voices and he uses it and he finds a clue and Balthasar comes up on him. And as Balthasar comes up on him, the voices get louder and louder. And at some point in this movie, Hennessy says, I drink to make the voices go away. So I think Mm. what's happening is Balthasar is torturing him with voices turned up to 11. He's like, I can't stand it. So he runs to the liquor store to try to drown the voices in alcohol. And this is this really cool premise where in his mind, he can't get a drop out of these bottles. He's cracking open bottles. He's pouring Chardonnay down his throat and nothing's coming out of the bottles. Oh, Chardonnay. Not even a nice (laughs) Gewürztraminer? Come on, man. (laughs) No, he doesn't have time to be choosy. He found something with a twist cap. But it's a really cool premise. I've never seen this in another movie where someone thinks they're not drinking and they're desperately trying to drink and they're actually drinking themselves to death. And within two minutes, he drinks enough alcohol to kill himself. It's a very complex scene just for knocking off a minor character. Yeah. Give it a lot of, put a lot of work into it. And I think it does pay off. But then my question is about Balthazar, Gavin Rosdale, one of the handsomest men maybe ever. (laughs) Is he good though? in this movie? Do you buy him? You know, does he pull it off? I'm not sure he does. He works for me, but maybe only because the Balthazar character is slightly goofy in a way that he doesn't know he is. Like he looks really slick, slick back hair. I would dare, dare I call him a tryhard? It's almost like you could see like probably like the people in hell don't like him either. Yeah, I think that's the subtext of it, but it's pretty subtle because if you just look at him, you're like, oh, this is that ideal of the handsome devil. I mean, he's dressed in these Italian pinstripe suits. He's super stylish, but he's actually dorky and it comes 
comes through when he starts fighting and when he starts talking. So I like that about him. Yes, his acting wasn't super. They didn't give him a ton of lines. And when he starts saying lines, he seems weak. But I think his character is kind of supposed to be weak. So the whole package kind of fit for me. Yeah, I think I turned on him during his scene at Midnight's when he does his weird lick his finger thing and like bite mm. the air around John's neck. It seems like he's trying to be Peter Stormare there, but he can't yes. quite pull it off. But right. then, yeah, like when half his face is blown off and being tortured by John later, you're like, okay, yeah, he's a wiener. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's <laughs> exactly. the character and that works. But I did love the twist that like John's reading him his last rites, forgiving his sins so he'll go to heaven when he dies. And that's like the torture. That's just a fun, fun twist, unlike the old trope. It is. It's a fun, smart <laughs> twist, but it also shows you what kind of wiener he is, that he fell for that. But yeah, another thing that makes him a wiener is when Constantine comes up on Baltazar, he's in this high-rise, fancy office building, and he's standing alone in a marble and glass-paneled conference room, just TVs playing American flags on them. He's like, what do you do, Baltazar? You stand alone in conference rooms? Like, your business is just being a demon, and it's just you? Shades of Bateman, maybe, because we never really figured out what he was doing up in that office. Actually, his hair is kind of Bateman-y, too. He kind of he yeah. casts a Patrick Bateman figure, Balthazar, but yeah. maybe less, less threatening somehow, even though he's a literal demon. So there's a scene that comes up that we both, I think, really liked. Yeah. The bathtub scene where Angela gets fully submerged in the bathtub to reignite her psychic powers or kind of demon seeing abilities. And I like what the movie does here by there's no score during the scene. She gets in the bathtub. John's holding her underwater. You're like, why is he holding her underwater? It's because it's going to take a while. And she starts like you see the panic slowly growing. Rachel Vice, obviously a great actor. She does a really good job of just this slowly mounting panic about nothing's happening and I'm running out of breath. Like, when are we going to make some progress (laughs) here? And she starts fighting against it and there's no score. You know, it's not ramping up this heavy horror score. Right. It's just all you hear is the splashing of the water. And then finally, of course, it works and she sees a vision of hell and she comes out of it and she has her powers back again. But it's like a minute where he's just like holding her underwater and you're starting to be like, oh, is he like a bad guy? (laughs) Yeah, it's great. Like you said, her acting is great. It's the example of the kind of acting I always picture. Like, could I have been an actor? And then when actors have to act in scenes underwater where they're drowning, I'm like, nope, nope, I never could have done that. I'm not capable of putting myself in that shit because I was drowning claustrophobia. So just Mm. watching that scene was hard for me. And I was very grateful that the bathtub exploded when it did because I was about to have to walk away from the You're starting to panic, huh? I was losing it. She had already lost it. She was clawing at Constantine to let her out, but he wasn't going to let her go. And the movie is starting to kind of play with us a little bit. And it's ramping up at this point where... I wouldn't call it a will they, won't they, because the movie never really does anything with the romance plot, but it's almost like Rachel Weisz's body language in the scenes is almost calling for it, but she's rebuffed uh-huh. at every turn and it's never commented upon. The movie comes close to commenting on it in this scene where she asks, do I have to take my clothes off? And Constantine gives like a nice long pause where he goes, I guess you can leave him on. That's the closest the movie ever comes to like acknowledging any romance between them. But you see her almost tense up and almost offer up herself for a kiss in certain scenes. And he just like breezes by it without a second thought. The movie just has no interest in that. That's interesting. They make Constantine super asexual and they make her like really normal. And I was going to say there's no chemistry between them in the scene where they have this very old fashioned kind of joke. Should I take my clothes off? He stops for a minute and he goes, I'm thinking. And it's okay. That joke was not funny. There was no sexual tension, except the second time I watched and there's one-sided sexual tension. Rachel Weiss projects a really interesting feeling of how she's feeling about Constantine at that moment. And he's a cold fish, which like you go, okay, is that Keanu or is that what they were trying to do? And I think to a large part, it's what they were trying to do. Cause like you said, there's several other fake out scenes. There's another scene later where he goes to put an amulet on her and their faces get close together. And it's another one like, no, he's not into it. He's not into her. She's getting- 
plays it. The, she plays it much the same way. Where yeah, yeah, she looks like she's getting into it, and she's just rebuffed. But there, there is a cut subplot which we'll discuss a little bit after the third section that maybe explains it. I don't know how monogamous Constantine yes. is, but you did have a love interest that was cut from the movie. All right, you want to walk us through the end of the movie then? All right, here we go. Bringing it home, back to hell. Constantine learns that Mammon has Angela at the psychiatric hospital where he's conducting the final ritual needed to enter the world of humans. So John and his apprentice Chaz arm themselves with holy weapons and conduct an all-out assault. They blast their way through a horde of half-breed demon defenders and reach Angela, but an unseen force kills Chaz and subdues John. The force then reveals reveals itself to be Gabriel, whose plan all along was to unleash Mammon on Earth and toughen up humanity to make them worthy of God's love. Constantine then cuts his own wrists, knowing Lucifer himself will show up to collect John's soul. But when Lucifer arrives and finds out what his son and Gabriel are up to, he puts a stop to that whole plan. In the end, thanks to Constantine's selfless sacrifice, Angela is saved, her sister's soul gets to go to heaven, and John is cured of his cancer and allowed to stay on earth, at least until he starts sinning again. Yeah, so this is the big kind of tower raid of the movie. The end is just yeah. mowing down demons with no regard. I like some aspects of this. There's First of all, the holy shotgun is pokey. They have this yeah. shotgun with a crucifix in it and these gold bullets with crucifixes engraved in them that Chaz makes. But they dump a bunch of holy water in the sprinkler system, which I'm a big fan of. I don't know what sprinkler system has like a reservoir tank in the building. I thought it was usually run by like city water. City water, or maybe if you had a cistern, it should probably be on the roof. Or otherwise, you'd need to spend a lot of energy pumping it into the right. sprinklers. But we're not here to, to nitpick details <laughs> no. like that. But they dump a bunch of holy water in there, which if you're going to fight demons, pretty good uh, pretty good idea. Or he shoves a cross in there and it turns the water that's already in there holy, right? That's one of the things that Chaz came up with when he revealed that he's been really doing his homework. Yes. Oh, man. But no, that's, I was with you until I realized, oh, this is subtly different. He didn't add holy water. He just like- Right. He turned the water that was already in there holy. He marinated across in the water tank. I guess he's brining it, right? More than <laughs> marinating because it's just water. But so that's clever. And one of the demons that gets melted by the holy water in the sprinkler system is an actress many of you will recognize. Michelle Monaghan is in yes. this movie. Quite briefly. I missed so her on my brief. first watch. I did too. I heard about it on a podcast. And then when that happened, I'm like, I thought I remember seeing a very attractive actress on screen for a second in that scene before all hell breaks loose. And I'm like, wait a minute, they don't usually cast extras that are like movie star beautiful. And I'm like, oh, okay, that explains it. It was Michelle Monaghan. And she would go on to have a very good 2005. She was in Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, one of my favorite oh, right. movies from the aughts. And then one of my like maybe top 10 movies ever, Gone Baby Gone in 2007. Mm. So this was in the middle of her real breakout. Apparently she was the love interest we were alluding to in the last section her mm -hmm. and she plays a succubus demon and her and john have an ongoing at least sexual relationship we don't really know how deep it goes that could maybe explain his reluctance to enter into a romance with angela but again maybe. this is just speculation we don't know what their real dynamic was they might have just been like friends with benefits i don't know it makes you ask all these questions had they broken up by this scene in the movie because otherwise you walk in on your girlfriend with a crowd of other demons defending the son of satan and it's like whoa this is awkward but i'm afraid i'm gonna have to douse you with holy water and kill you now. And all we have left of whatever that interaction was between the two of those lovers was her going, holy water? One moment before everything goes to shit. Yeah, strange. I would love to know what that character was like in the yeah. full version of the movie, but 
Sadly, it was a victim of the edit. So then we also get Gabriel's big heel turn in this. More Tilda just flexing on him. Yeah. Just chewing up the scenery as only she can. I don't know that Gabriel's motivation is a thousand percent sound or fleshed out, really. It's kind of vague, but I think it works more or less. Yeah. She talks us through it and your eyes glaze over for a minute. And you're like, okay. She's like, yeah, God loves man and it's too easy and man should work harder. And what I've noticed is is under stress, man gets better. And so really I'm doing this for you guys. And I was like, "Okay, okay, we get it. You're just spooky and evil. You're just a bad angel now. Let it go. Yeah. But it does give us, since she never really commits to being evil, it gives us some fun scenes at the end where she's now just a human. She gets her angel powers removed. Uh-huh. Her wings are chopped off. And then John, instead of killing her, just punches her in the face. And she's like, look, you're doing so much better already. You could have shot me, but you just punched me. Like, yeah. you're on the path to redemption. She's still a zealot, a true believer, but she's just a person now. That part, that was weird. I actually didn't know how to interpret that line because he's like trying to punish her at the end. He's like, this is pain. Get you to it. This is what it's like to be a person. And she comes back with that really optimistic, like she's still a Catholic evangelist. Interesting choice. I think it's consistent with the character. And I think it's a smart choice because it is showing that she wasn't just evil. She believed whatever nonsense she was saying, which as long as the villain believes their plan, it can be compelling, even if it doesn't make sense. Yeah, I agree with you. It's a smarter choice. Now we have to get to probably my favorite part of this entire movie, which is the man, my boy, Peter Stormare yeah. as Lucifer. Fucking maniac performance in this movie. I don't know <laughs> what he was on. First of all, big shout out to him because they wanted to make Lucifer decked out like the guy from Airheads last week, full leather daddy, like spiked collar, a stereotypical devil type thing. But no, he's wearing a white linen suit that's kind of like dirty, no shoes, tar dripping from his feet for some fucking reason. Yeah, some black sludge coming off his feet. It's gross. But it's good. Like it <laughs> yeah, works. It's great. It's so much better than having him with like little devil horns or some stereotypically scary costume. He's just a guy. He's a bureaucrat is a vibe you get from him, which is so on point. And the subtle makeup too, like you said, he doesn't have devil horns. He doesn't have red glowing eyes as some of the other demons do. He just has sort of red around his eyes, like his eyes look They're really like very swollen. bloodshot. Yeah. yeah, bloodshot and swollen. He has a little bit of purple veins coming up from his neck, but he also has some weird tattoos that you don't even get to see, but there's some spikes of sharp tattoo coming up from under the collar of his blazer. It's very yeah. subtle, but between that so and good. his performance, it's a really good devil in a movie. This is way up there. And pardon the pun, but his performance is quite devilish. He's a little stinky. And I love that about him. It's kind of sarcastic, but he's not even like cruel, really. Like he he helps John light a cigarette. He's like, oh, you cut the tendons too deep. Your hand movement goes out the window. You could tell he's evil, but he's not playing it like mustache twirly. He's over it. He feels like this is all beneath him to some degree. So he's just fucking around with people. He's a trickster. He does help him, but he fucks with him in that too. He dodges the cigarette with the lighter like twice before the third try, he lets him light it. He is Satan after all. <laughs> yeah, he's just, it's very subtle. And because the actor Starmar is so good, there's so much behind his eyes. You're like, oh shit, I can't imagine what else this Lucifer would get up to if we had more screen time. But what a cool thing that he just parachutes in. He literally flies in in the very last few minutes of the movie. And you're like, wow, that was a cool thing that they saved for the end. The big boss is a lot of fun. And it's not a, really a deus ex machina because they set up, they say it a few times throughout the movie, that like you're the one soul that he would come up here personally. So then when John's out of options, he cuts his wrist to summon him. And that's not, it's not bad writing. The movie sets it up really well. You don't even realize they're preparing you for that until it happens. And you're like, oh shit, that's really smart. And he's trying to 
goad him into asking what Mammon's up to, but he's just blowing him off for a while. He's like, oh, yeah, boys will be boys and he can't be bothered until finally yeah. he gets uh, he gets him with the line about it being Gabriel in there with him and the Spear of Destiny. And I don't know, it's just, it's such a compelling performance. I really, really love this scene. I know, I think I noticed the same thing that you did in that. It's not like a tattletale thing where like he shows up and Constantine goes, quick, in the other room, it's your son. You got to stop him. It's like they have this weird conversation. It's very natural. It's good writing and good acting that scene. You know? And it's great that the movie ends on such strong characters and such strong writing. It definitely brings it home nicely. And then when he's trying to drag him to hell and he gradually just can't move him any further. Like it's a fun realization from Stormare that he's lost John due to his selfless yeah. act. And his yeah. last revenge is to let him keep living. He literally reaches into his chest and pulls out his black lungs, which is a grisly scene. It's bloodless because it's a PG-13 movie, but it still looks painful as fuck. I think the first time through this movie, I remember being sort of scared, even though it was PG-13 level blood and gore and violence, like being freaked by the stuff that happened. And yeah, this scene has all these little subtle things. God decides to just weigh John's body down so that it likes kicking up tiles till Lucifer can't drag it anymore. And that's the second time John had his torso reached into by somebody. It's true. Papa Midnight got him too. But this devil was kind of nice. The devil was kind of nice overall. Did you think that? On balance, that was a pretty, like you don't come away from many deals with the devil where you make out that well. Yeah. Like the only thing, John's not damned to hell anymore. He's just, he's giving him a chance to fuck up again, which is pretty, John knows the rules now. I feel like he's going to try his very best to not fuck that up. Yeah. Like a more wicked devil could have gone, okay, I see how it is. You did your self-sacrifice. God's letting you back into heaven. Fuck you. I'm giving you 12 more kinds of cancer and you're going to spend your last six months on earth in the most exquisite pain that any human beings ever imagined. Cause like- You can't kill yourself. Right. Cause we know what that's kind of going to go. Exactly. But he doesn't. He's like, I'm going to give you another chance to fuck up, which is nice. Yeah. Pretty mild. And you said pretty good setup for a sequel. And uh, we know we're getting it now. Just in September, they announced it. Yeah, that's wild. An R-rated sequel from Keanu Reeves and Francis Lewis returning to direct. I don't know if Stormare is going to be in it. I don't know if Rachel Weisz is going to be in it. None of that's confirmed yet. I think it's very early days for the sequel, but I'll be there. I'll be in the theater when it drops, regardless, even if Akiva Goldsman writes it. Yeah, we're going to have to see it. Let's hope the standard of the writing stays up because overall, looking back, you're like, wow, they were able to give real character arcs to both of the leads in this movie. Angela had a character arc that climaxed a little bit earlier when she realized that she had been suppressing her abilities. And in the end, she opens up to them and she uses that to, she gets herself in the shit, but she uses that to help solve the mystery. And then John has this character arc where he's selfish the whole time and he sacrifices what he thinks was going to be his one shot at redemption to offer it to Angela's sister, who he barely knows. He met her one time in hell and, um, <laughs> and his selflessness. It's a funny sentence. Sorry. Saves him as a character, but that's a lot for a cheesy, like special effects oriented action movie. That's a lot of character growth for both those guys. Overall, better writing than it needed, which I think is why it's endured yeah. past its expiration date at the theater, because there is stuff to uncover when you watch it and rewatch it. It definitely rewards rewatches. It did that to me this week. So should we get into where some of the principal people from this movie ended up? Yeah. What they've been up to? What's going on? Shall we start with uh, Mr. Lawrence himself, the director? Yeah, I'm curious. I don't know anything about this guy. Yeah, I didn't. I wasn't familiar with him either. So this was his first movie after a long career as a music video director. Interestingly enough, everybody who was attached to direct this movie was a music video director. Patrick Hunter, Tarsim Singh, and Francis Lawrence all came from the music video world. I think that's a popular pipeline, and I think you can probably get right. it for cheap. But Tarsim Singh, at least, has had a very interesting career, too. Check out his filmography one day. Okay, yeah. Uh, he made a very weird movie called The 
fall a year after this one came out that Ooh, is okay. on the Plex and very hard to find, apparently. Fantasy weirdness. I, I remember the cell and I remember how it had some of the visual characteristics that this movie has, interesting sets and paying some attention to colors and design and stuff that you wouldn't always see from other directors. Yeah, The Cell is a great visual movie. I don't remember if the story holds up or makes sense at all, but right. it fucked yeah. me up when I watched it this time. It had some fucked up shit. I remember that. Definitely. Good Vincent D'Onofrio performance in there. Mm-hmm. Doing a lot of weird stuff as he's known to do. All right. So anyway, back to Francis Lawrence. This was his first movie. He followed this up with I Am Legend, of which your mileage may vary on I Am Legend. Okay. I think it does some things okay, but I ultimately think it's a failure of a movie overall. Then he would do the romantic drama Water for Elephants. I think that's a Reese Witherspoon movie, if I'm remembering that correctly. Mm, I did not okay. see it, but I think it got pretty good reviews. But then he got into the J-Law business. Jennifer Lawrence, and he's been in there ever since. He made The Hunger Games Catching Fire, which was the second movie, I think. And then he did both parts of Mockingjay, which was the finale. They split into two movies. So that's three Hunger Games movies right there. Those were all obviously money makers, big hits. And then he made Red Sparrow, another Jennifer Lawrence movie that was a decent sized hit, I think. I think it made money. And then he just had a movie come out this day. Oh, yeah. We're recording this on Friday the 18th. Slumberland on Netflix just came out. Uh, It's a Jason Momoa, a children's fantasy. Interesting. uh, But it's live action. It's not a animated. He directed that. I don't know how the reviews are, but looked interesting enough in the trailer I saw. Yeah, this guy's been doing a lot of stuff. He's been busy. I admit that I was totally ignorant about him, but I'm like, oh, I shouldn't have been. He's quite a successful Hollywood director. It's a good chance you've seen something this guy made besides Constantine, even if you didn't know it at the time. Yeah, totally. And he's directing a series for Netflix that I'm very excited about. I don't know how many of our listeners are gamers, but he is developing a Bioshock adaptation, which is one of my favorite video game series of all time. Yes. You need a freaky dude to do that, and he just might be able to pull it off. I'm excited for that. And then, of course, he'll be returning for the Constantine sequel that we just announced. I wouldn't expect to see the Constantine movie until 2024, hopefully Bioshock 2023. But he's, Uh like you said, he's been very busy, stayed active. The writers of this movie, less active. Let's get into what they did. So it was, we didn't talk about the writers, but we commended their work quite a bit. We said a good script, good characters, good writing, good arcs. It was written by two guys, not like a writing team or anything, two separate writers that worked on the script. Kevin Brodlin and Frank Capello. So Brodlin's written four movies. The Glimmer Man, which is a very bad Steven Seagal movie. Okay. Mind Hunters, which is not the David Fincher show or the Michael Mann movie Manhunter. It's its own thing, know. which I've never heard of and oh. apparently wasn't very good. Constantine, of course. And The Siege of Jadotville, Jadotville, J-A-D-O-T-ville. I always wondered how to that. say that. Jadotville? I don't know. <laughs> Jadotville. Let's go with that. We'll be French okay. about it. And apparently he did some uncredited work on the A-Team script. So not the best resume besides Constantine or including Constantine, depending on yeah. your point of view. It's not jumping out at me. Capello's done some more stuff. He's also done some directing. He directed a guilty pleasure movie of mine, the 1993 Viggo Mortensen crime drama American Yakuza. Oh, okay. Which is probably not a good movie, but it's a movie I enjoy. He wrote Suburban Commando, one of the worst movies I've ever seen. The Hulk Hogan starring film from the early 90s. Oy. And then he wrote, directed, and produced a well-received 2007 Christian Slater black comedy called He Was a Quiet Man, hmm. which I never saw, but it sounds interesting. I'll check that out maybe. 2007 was the wilderness of Christian Slater's career, so I don't think a lot of his projects were getting a lot of write-ups or a lot of press. So that movie came and went without much notice, but it was apparently pretty good. It got good reviews and sounds interesting. I will take a look if I can find it. Yeah, that was a quiet movie because I never heard of it. hey And then he's currently writing and directing two upcoming projects. Both sound horror tinged, at least if not full horror. A movie called The Womb, okay. which that sounds like a horror movie, and a TV show called Malibu Gothic. Ah. We'll see how that goes. Yeah. Brodlin has not stayed busy, but Capello seems <laughs> to be working pretty steadily. 
All right. I don't think we need to catch people up on what Keanu Reeves has been doing too much because, you know, he's Keanu Reeves. He's never stopped being the beloved man that he is. Yeah. The love has only grown, if anything. I mean, he was just in The Matrix Resurrections, which got mixed reviews and lost a bunch of money, but he seems to be having a good time in it. And he'll be in the upcoming John Wick Chapter 4 and the Ana de Armas spinoff movie, Ballerina. He's going to reprise his role in that. And it's rumored he'll be appearing in the John Wick TV show about the Continental Hotel, like in a cameo role. I'm a fan of the Wickverse. How about you? Yeah, I am. I I didn't get that into it. I watched a couple of them probably. And I'm like, ah, this is cool. And it turned out to be another great vehicle for Keanu. Like it strikes the right balance. Whereas this movie, we had some issues with his underlying tone of peace and harmony with the world clashed with this character who was supposed to be really cynical and jaded. And John Wick has that dog loving core that you just, you're ready to believe is Keanu. And so you can see why those movies maybe took off more than this one did. In a nice comparison to Constantine, I feel like the first John Wick movie did the same thing I really praise this movie for doing, which is work in world building and exposition very subtly uh-huh. uh, without beating you over the head with it. And I think John Wick two and three were maybe a little over the top with some of the world building that there's this, the network aspect of it, of all these hitmen and assassins seems a little too far fetched by the time you get to the third movie. Okay. But the first one, it's cool. There's a society that's just underneath ours and it works in these ways that were being shown, but also some of it's still a mystery. And I think the first movie strikes a really good balance, like a lot of what Constantine did of showing us how this world works without giving us all the details. Makes you want more, which explains why there's a Continental Hotel series in development. Because as soon as you saw that in the first movie, you're like, this is fascinating. Show me more. Right. What's going on here? But then I'm, I'm not always happy with the more that they show us. So it's hard to pull it off. Yeah. It's hard to pull it, it. Sometimes leaving them guessing is the right move. <laughs> yeah. But I still, I'm still going to see John Wick 4, of course. And then, so Rachel Weisz was very busy for most of the aughts and the tens, but her only performance since 2018 is in Black Widow. So she's been okay. pretty quiet throughout the last few years. But she's in a project that I'm very curious about. So she is going to be in an upcoming Amazon Prime series called Dead Ringers. And if you're wondering if it has anything to do with the David Cronenberg film titled Dead Ringers, it does. She is going to be playing the twins that are the main characters of the show, which is a gender swapped version of the characters played by Jeremy Irons in the original movie. It's fucked up in Cronenberg-y ways. She's going to be playing twin gynecologists, I believe. And uh, yeah, I'm definitely going to check it out, but I might have to peace out after one or two episodes if it's too gross for me, because Cronenberg can sometimes be a little gross for me. Exactly. That's why I think I avoided the original because I can't really take a lot of Cronenberg, but I do like Rachel Weisz. So I'm curious. Cronenberg's more like, it's hard to call Eastern Promises a mainstream film, but when you're talking Cronenberg, like it's about as close as it gets or like a history of violence. I really enjoy those movies, but even they are hard to watch at times. Like he never pulls back and makes the violence more Hollywood, even in his more Hollywood movies. So yeah, that was my limit. Like I was able to deal with the violence in those because I liked the themes. I'm a sucker for crime and mob kind of themes. We both are, yeah. But the, there's one scene in particular in a history of violence where it just, you forget you're watching a Cronenberg movie for a hot minute and then he just hits you over the head with something. You're like, oh, now I remember. <laughs> something like, unspeakable happens to somebody's body part that just looks really painful. I did not watch Crimes of the Future, but I did read the Wikipedia. Okay. So. I didn't even read it. I couldn't even read it. <laughs> no. Body horror is not my strong suit. No. We got to talk about Shia a little bit, fortunately. Okay. Had an up and down career, obviously, in acting, but also in his life. He's been arrested a bunch in the early 2010s. I think it really started to come to light that he was struggling with drinking, substance use problems, whatever you want to call it. And then he was accused of a whole bunch of terrible things by his ex-girlfriend, FKA Twigs, who's a musician. And so that's hasn't really been resolved. It okay. seems to have impacted his upcoming work. That's not the reason he was removed from Don't Worry Darling, because it hadn't come out yet, but he was removed from Don't Worry Darling. He says he quit. Olivia Wilde says he was fired. Oh. Uh, but he's got work coming out. He's He was in Padre Pio this year, and he's in an upcoming Francis Ford Coppola movie, Megalopolis. 
So he's not exactly persona non grata in Hollywood, but I guess he's not. certainly not the young up and coming star he was on the Transformers movies. I think everyone is agreed that he's a very talented and gifted actor who just seems like a very troubled and possibly bad person. Yeah. Allegedly. Allegedly. Thank you. <laughs> but so there's that. And let's get into the box office here. Cause I hint, I didn't really give the rundown of what this movie was up against when it released. Okay. I said it wasn't a crowded box office and I stand by that. It opened in second place with $29.7 million behind Hitch. Hitch was in its second week. Hitch is the Will Smith, Kevin Smith, Eva Mendez comedy. Sure. Kevin James. Kevin James. James. I said Kevin Smith. Yeah. Yeah. But we know what you meant. You knew what I meant. Hitch made 31.3 in its second week. The only other new releases that week were Because of Winn-Dixie, a movie about a dog at a grocery store, because that's a grocery store chain, but it's also about a dog. Okay. And Son of the Mask, one of the worst movies I've ever... You know what? I don't think I've ever watched that movie, but I've seen the trailer enough to know that I never want to watch that movie. Okay. That's fair. The Jamie Kennedy sequel to The Mask. Yes. So not a very crowded box box office that week and it still only didn't pull in 30 mil. It dropped 60% to third place the next week, pulled in $12 million as Diary of a Mad Black Woman debuted and took first place with 21.9 million. Hmm. It would drop to sixth place in its third week. It didn't fall off a cliff ever, just kept gradually reducing every week and it didn't have a strong enough start to give itself enough legs to turn a real profit at any point. So this is where we ended up grossing under 75 million domestic, which is not great for a movie with a $100 million budget. Like you said, there was room for it to succeed. I remember Hitch being a pretty dominant kind of a hit, but like there was room and these competitors that you named aren't really in its category. This was like, it's February, you said, so who knows if yeah. anyone's going to movies, but there should have been more opportunity. The movie just, maybe it doesn't cl- I mean, he's not a he's not a well-known comic book character. We weren't really in the heyday of comic book characters like we are now. That's true. Or like we were five years ago, maybe. I don't know if we, I would call it the heyday anymore. Seems like the returns are diminishing, but yeah, you could launch a C-list character now and make $300, $400 million. Okay. But in 2005, comic book movies weren't really hitting like that yet and he wasn't a well-known character he's a cult favorite but vertigo is not a mainstream imprint really it just did okay but under other circumstances with all these ingredients that we like it could have gone the other way this could have made a decent chunk of money and the sequel could have taken less than 18 years to arrive but now that we've had more time to sit with the movie and it's been able to build its fan base i feel like the sequel feel less like a cash grab and more like a passion project and we might get a better movie out of it because we've had to wait for it. Yeah, but they say that about the last Matrix. It's kind of the same. Did thing. you watch Although it? They, yes, I like the new Matrix. Of course, the counterpoint is that was how I poo-pooed the whole Top Gun idea. And right. What the fuck do I know? You can make an amazing movie, apparently, out of some old ass shit. Did you watch Top Gun yet? Not yet. I'm saving oh, it for do the it. 4th of July or something. I don't know what I'm saving it for, but I haven't You're so full of it. shit. You're not saving it for the 4th of July. <laughs> I haven't been in that mood. I don't want to see something jingoistic and I feel like I don't know if that's really the tone that Maverick takes but I'm like not ready for it it's weird it, it, you can't make a Top Gun movie without a little jingoism uh-huh. but the enemy is just the enemy we don't even know what country we're fighting in it so okay. it, it's just uh, it's just about the planes man alright <laughs> they're really not trying to say too much with it I don't think uh, but it, it is worth your time yeah everyone says it's amazing I gotta get to it but that's Constantine and uh, we're keeping the big listener requests coming next week oh Do you know what we're doing next week no I forgot to check it's a doozy it's gonna be some heavy watching but we're doing children of men finally oh my goodness we're really doing it we got to do it we got to do it eventually right we're 83 episodes in now what are we what are, when are we gonna do it if not now <laughs> yeah we're i think we're ready we got a little <laughs> bit of practice under our belt get your tissues you're gonna cry have you seen children of men yet yes i've seen it i've seen it several times i okay. love children of men it's really it's, it's a great fucking it's, movie it's really good i wonder if it's my favorite movie we've covered here because we've covered a lot of movies i really love but yeah that would be something if it is i'm gonna have to grapple with that and really look through our list and find out because it's up there for sure it feels like shawshank or something 
something, something really classic that people go, what, that bombed? I, know. I can't believe it. That's like a majestic movie. I think it bombed pretty hard too. Let me pull up the financials right now. I don't think it was a cheap movie to make. So it had a budget of $76 million and it made $70 million total. So okay. yeah, that's a pretty hard bomb. I'm very excited to revisit it though. Such a great movie. We got to bring it. That's a real one. We got to do justice. On that note, thank you guys so much for listening. Please remember to rate, review, subscribe to the podcast if you can. We appreciate it. It helps new listeners find our podcast in a crowded field of movie podcasts by white guys. We appreciate your help. You can follow us on Twitter for the time being at BlastZonePod. We'll see how long that holds true. You can email us BlastZonePod at gmail.com for any suggestions, feedback, questions, whatever you want to do. I am compiling your questions to do another mailbag episode someday soon. Who needs? So feel free to send them in and we'll see you next time in the Blast Zone. See you next time in the Blast Zone. The Blast Zone. Blast Zone.